everyone. Welcome back to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and a quick shout out to Filson at Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the show. This week, I am going to be talking with my friend, Tony Caggiano. Tony is like me from the Northeast, the New York metro area. He's actually originally from the Bronx, and you're about to hear it in his accent. We are going to talk turkey. Yep, turkeys. Wild turkeys are Tony's specialty, and he knows more about them than pretty much anybody else I know. So we're going to go into a lot of the biology, the hunting tips, the the various different subspecies, as well as the species, because Tony hunts them down in Mexico as well. And we are going to focus on fall turkeys. Yep, we're going to focus on your ability to put a wild Thanksgiving turkey on your table for this Thanksgiving. So give it a listen, and I hope you enjoy it. Tony Caggiano, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am very happy to have you back on the show. It's been like two years, maybe? I think yeah, it's two or three, uh, actually. Yeah, since uh, I was still a, a hunting guide in New York last time, or, or just, I think I just retired from guiding, but I was still up in New York last time. So. Yeah, you're right. You're now in Florida now, right? Yes, sir. Moved down here in uh, 2018, and uh just uh, working from home, like everybody else now, it doesn't sound special. It, it was pretty special. It was like a treat before to be a dude that worked from home. But now I'm just like everybody else with the Rona going around. I know, with the Zoom, everybody's Zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's funny, um, I am one of the last people who does not have a camera on my computer because I'm, I'm digging my heels into this one as much as I can. <laughs> there you go. Pick your battles. Right? You know, like... <laughs> I, there's whole articles and pamphlets and things about like how to look good in a zoom meeting. Like I would just rather not be on a zoom meeting or at least not be, you know, visual on a, on a zoom meeting. And it's crazy. Did you yeah. hear about the guy? It was like a, a, a fishing game commission in Indiana. It was like a public zoom meeting and some guy like pops in on this public zoom meeting in Indiana and he's just, he's jacking it like on camera <laughs> in this public zoom so that everybody running the Zoom video was like, oh, my God. There you go. A good time was had by all. No, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but you know, it's, uh, that's, it. I guess that's what that's what the risks you run when you're just doing it. I mean, I've had Zoom meetings where I was talking to somebody and my son walks by behind me in a pair of underwear. Like, just comes walking in looking. You know what I mean? Just got out of bed and his hair's a mess. See, the crazy but, thing is, is what you're not saying is that your son's 21. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. This one, he's 13, but yeah, 21. Same deal. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of came. He kind of came wandering in, and he's like, "Oh, sorry." And I didn't even notice it because I was in the middle of looking at the camera talking, and then everybody was laughing about it. But yeah, man, you know that's that's uh, life in 2020, I suppose. For sure. Why don't we? Why don't Why don't you explain to everybody about your uh, your connection with turkeys? Because we're going to talk turkey today, and specifically, we're going to focus on fall turkeys and all things fall turkey, not just the hunting of them, but habitat and biology, and, and then we'll get to cooking kind of towards the end. But uh, I wanted to talk with you not only because you know it was fun having you on at the last go round, but you are a turkey specialist. If I am, if I if I could be so bold as saying that. Yeah. Uh... I'd like to think of myself like that a little bit, and so, certainly other people seem to. Um, I was I started I started hunting turkeys in the early '90s, and it quickly became an obsession. I went from 
not knowing what I'm doing to killing a turkey to being able to fill my tags really quickly because I obsessed over the next season. And about two years later, I started guiding and I started guiding full time in 1999. Uh, worked at a private club in upstate New York, which is kind of a sleeper because people don't realize that how good the turkey hunting is and was. It was even better at one point in New York. Um, so I just got, I was eaten up with him. I would guide 26 days out of the 31 day season. And every year I, early on, I would drive to every state I could within striking distance that I could get a tag. Um, and it kind of morphed into, I own a company called World Slam Adventures and it's a sporting travel agency, but it focuses heavily. It specializes in wild turkey hunting. So I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to have taken I think six or seven, six, uh, world slam, two, six grand slams. And, and I got my second world slam completed this year. Um, yeah, one year or did you No, So, no, so I didn't get a single season slam yet this year. The thing that sucks is that this year was supposed to be the year I had the single season slam. I had it, uh, I had it all planned out. We started out in Mexico. I got my oscillated and we we're supposed to come back to, come back home and start here in, in Florida in March and then travel across the country with uh, a buddy of mine and the the virus crushed that. So we're going to, we're going to pick that up again next year and we're going to do, we're recording a single season uh, world slam. We're sponsored by NWTF doing a video with them. So it should have been, it should have been a lot of fun, but now it's, it's postponed like so many other things in this world. I know I've had virtually everything postponed <laughs> this year. I mean, everything yeah. from my own trips to Mexico to all across the country to Alaska and Canada and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, oh, well. Yeah. And, you know, you and I talked a lot about that. We were talking about some of the Mexico stuff. And it was, uh, you know, as far as the turkeys go, I'm still obsessed. I've been lucky enough to to, to hunt a lot of big game and water. I've, I'm just about as obsessed with the waterfowl trying to get every waterfowl species I can in North America and that sort of thing. But the turkeys will always be special to me. It's kind of, after being a guide for 20 something years, it's like, it feels like home to me when I'm turkey hunting. It's just, the other hunts can be an adventure, but turkey hunting is as corny as it sounds kind of become, it's just what I do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I still do, I still have world slam adventures. In addition to that, I manage sales outside of Turkey Room. I manage sales for 21 lodges in Argentina. Uh, hunting both bird hunting and big game as well as fishing lodges and then as as you know and um, some people know that uh i've you and i became friends online through social media before before the podcasting thing and all this other stuff just talking about good food and while i'm not a a trained chef i do i have a, a podcast and a website about called wild game based and that's just it's just what it sounds like. It's just talking about wild game as, you know, from hunting to fishing to procuring it, butchering and all that sort of stuff. It's just what I love. And that's how I'm raising my kids. We eat 90% wild game at home and just kind of sharing that stuff with like-minded people and having a good time with my partner, uh, Jeremiah Dowdy. Yeah, and he's from SoCal, right? Yeah, he's from South Cal- from Southern California. He's down there outside of Anaheim. And I just spoke to him about an hour ago. He did, he was just out fishing. So I guess you're out looking for halibut. He goes out in the 
those guys down there, they got it pretty good where he is. You go out in a kayak and you can hook in the halibut and all sorts of other, I guess, different rock fish. And oh, yeah. I'm not familiar with the California fish, but you know, you know it better than me, man. So but the you, main rock so, fish that we catch from shoot Baja to, to Alaska, it's imagine, you know, black sea bass, right? Sure. of course. It's Delicious. basically like that, except there's 41 species of effectively black. It's a little bit like the snappers. So, that, you know, there's like five or ten snappers, and then there's a whole bunch of like porgies and grunts and things like that, and then there's the black sea bass. So imagine all of those fish kind of rolled into one bucket, and that's the rockfish. Yeah, I just – I got to figure all that stuff out. I don't have to worry about the California stuff, but I'm down in Florida, and there's a lot of fish that look similar down here. You're like me. You're from – you grew up in Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. North. So when I caught something in the Long Island Sound – there was there were a bunch of different fish out there, but none of them looked the same. So you knew exactly what you were getting into. You know, a blackfish didn't look like a fluke, didn't look like a striper, didn't look like a weak fish. So down here, there are 15 different snappers, and they, and they, they all got different slot limits. And you know, so I'm uh, we're going. I actually heading out to the to the coast tomorrow to uh, to do some surf fishing with my boys. Nice. And, I might I might head out on Friday for some rockfish. <laughs> Nice, man. Yeah, so... So, uh, so I'm not slam, i got to ask you, um, where were you going to get your ghouls? Because that seems to be, like, the hard one. So, yeah, the ghouls, I, we, I've we i hunted before around uh, with a good buddy of mine, Manuel Enriquez. He's out of Chihuahua. So uh. we fly into Chihuahua. It's about an hour and a half to the ranch. And then we hunt in the uh, Sierra Madre Mountains, which is, it's from the ranch to the mountains can be a long drive because where the turkeys are there simply aren't there aren't people right there's not there's no ranches there's no power there's no like electricity up there so you got a little bit of a drive in the morning but it's uh the gould's turkey are they're gorgeous they're big um i think that they might be the most call responsive turkey i've ever hunted certainly and one really cool one really cool uh piece of trivia about them is when you think of turkeys, everyone just assumes, or at least I did, a lot of people I know around me that I've spoke to, assume that an eastern turkey is kind of the core turkey and everything else branched off of that. But through some research, I discovered that they say the Gould's turkey is actually the oldest subspecies of turkey. That's kind of the wild turkey that all the other turkeys um stemmed off of in the, in the family tree which is pretty i mean cool. it makes a ton of sense because if you think about it it's the it's the maya and the aztecs who domesticated the turkey and it wasn't just the oscillated because i mean if you look at yeah. the the domesticated turkeys down there they look like fools were more or less they don't look like an oscillated i'll put it that way and so yeah, yeah it makes perfect sense i hadn't thought about that but yeah yeah nobody does i didn't either until i, I was before i went out there i wanted to just because I'm such a, a, a turkey nerd, I wanted to do more research. Like that. And I found it in a couple of different places. And yeah, that was, to me, that's just one of those cool bits of trivia about them. But they're, they're gorgeous birds for whatever reason, I guess because of where they, they have huge feet, they get big. Um, I mean, I've shot two, two goulds and both of them were over 25 pounds. One was 27 pounds. And you hear turkey. guys every day saying, I, I shot a, I shot a 28 pounder and this and that. And, Listen, a 28-pound turkey, people can call in and, and call BS on me, but 28-pound turkeys are few and far between, and it was pretty cool to see birds that size. Here's a side note. What subspecies gets the largest? 
Um, on the rec, on average, they say the Goulds get the largest, but the record is for mm. are for Eastern turkeys, which have been over thirty pounds. And you know, I'm not the guy to uh, to bash anybody this and that, but they're over a thirty pound turkey. Seems like that turkey was uh, getting into something, eating a lot of domestic grain or doing something to get that big. But but yeah, yeah Eastern turkeys. Eastern I think it's like a thirty three pound bird or something like that is the record. On the well, it's like map. wild hogs, you know, like. So yeah. wild hogs in California are rarely over 300 pounds, but you get them in the deep south where they're getting into like the catfish food and such. You, you know, Q hogzilla, and so I bet that turkey yeah, was man. getting into something. Yeah, and but that's the, the record goes to an eastern, as last I heard, unless it's been broken. But I think that the ghouls are the biggest body birds. They have these massive feet on them. Uh, spurs don't get very big, but that's also kind of like a Miriam's. I mean, really. Rough. where we were hunting it's like lava rock everything just wears on you and if you got to crawl or kneel down it's not like hunting in the northeast where you can do it out there it's you got if you have to crawl 20 yards it's painful between the cactuses and all the, the sharp jagged edge rocks and stuff but yeah, i could almost pet a ghoul's turkey bird. when i was squirrel hunting in arizona like we really? were looking just... for the 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 chiricahua red squirrel which is this so like you have your turkey slam, I I, I have the squirrel slam. <laughs> and you're not right, man. But whatever. I, well, you know, <laughs> I have a thing for bushy-tailed rodents. What can I say? Uh, but we're in like the Chiricahua Mountains, and it's it's one of the very few places where the Gould's turkey will pop up into the United States. And so we're hunting around for this giant. It basically looks like a big red fox squirrel, and it's just slightly more orangey than the typical fox squirrel you you get in the east and so we're hunting for this thing and i see this movement i'm like oh it's a turkey it's a huge turkey and it's, it's a huge turkey like 10 feet away just wandering through the woods <laughs> and i guess I was, you never saw a person before you didn't know what the hell he was looking at it's possible it's totally because it just it was not wary at all and of course you know, there was no hunting season on him there but i think that you can get a tag for that zone but it, it yeah it's like a, a premium it's sort of like getting a kaibab deer tag it's you know you're not going to just draw a tag to get a goulds in arizona just willy-nilly you have to kind of put in a bunch of points to earn it yeah i've been applying for i just wanted to get a, a goulds in the u.s so i've been applying in arizona now for i think this year was probably well last year usually put in in december for it i guess mm-hmm. november December. and that was like my ninth year in a row and i didn't get one and it's a very tough tag to pull. Plus a lot of people, it would be, I think it could be even worse. I think one of the things that helps is that in Arizona, you have to buy the license to apply for the tag. So just applying for the Goulds in Arizona winds up costing like 168 or 170 bucks, you know? Yeah. That's the downside. Well, I, I had in Arizona a lot, less, so I usually yeah. use that for well, license. Yeah, see, I don't hunt in Arizona, so I get the license every year, and I got to plan a trip to Arizona. I got to get out there. I'm buying this damn license anyway, trying to kill these silly turkeys. But exactly, yeah, I think I spend less money. I spend less money on applying for most of my sheep tags than I do for that silly turkey tag. <laughs> do they? Can you get them in uh, New Mexico too? I don't think there's any huntable population in New Mexico. I think there are a few here and there, but. Uh, aside from maybe the odd governor's tag or something to raise money for conservation, I've never heard of anything in ah. New Mexico. Yeah. 
just Arizona is the only, as far as I know, Arizona is the only place north of the border that you can hunt them. Gotcha. It's like how Texas is the only place north of the border to hunt chachalacas. Yeah. But then you go down to Argentina and they're flying around your head all the time. <laughs> right there. And there's like nine species of chachalaca from literally Argentina all the way to Brownsville, Texas, which is it's tremendously huge range. Yeah. And the guys down there are like the Texans down there were freaking out like they're everywhere. And the guys down there are just like whatever. Like nobody nobody even pays them any mind in Argentina. They are so, so delicious. They're incredibly delicious, like incredibly like, oh, my God, delicious. They're yeah, they're we like, had Mexico. Yeah, yeah. You ate them in the Yucatan, right? Yucatan, yeah. Because when you're down there, it's that's one fun thing about hunting. You know, we're talking about the oscillated hunting in the Yucatan is that it's in the spring. You you know, turkey hunting in the spring, but there's so many other game species open at that time of year. I've been really lucky. I've taken a great curacao. I've I've shot some brocket deer down there. Um, we've seen chachalacas. I got a kawada Monday this year, which you and I talked about online. Yeah, easily one of the most delicious animals that no one would in North America would, or the United States is going to consider eating. You know, I know. I mean? I'm like one of the few people who has ever cooked one in north of the border. I think. <laughs> yeah, because and down there, when when I got it, I said a lot of guys hunt them for you know you'll get one as a trophy animal or something. But I said we're down there and Jeremiah and I we're going to eat it, whatever we're shooting. Like we're like you, anything. If, oh, I haven't eaten that before. Throw it on the grill. Let's see what it tastes like, kind of. And we we did one underground. They they did it kind of in an old traditional Mayan or uh, Oaxacan technique, wrapping it with the banana leaves and burying it underground for hours. Oh, a pib. Burned, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it was so good. And they burned all the skin off of it, all the hair off first, and scraped it. And that was one of those. That was the game meat that surprised me more than any other because. When you look at an animal that looks like a raccoon and a monkey had a baby, you kind right. of, in your mind, you're expecting it to have this kind of funky, some kind of funkiness to the meat, but it was delicious. It was so good, rich. Um, Weirdly a, fatty. It was a, yeah, weird, very fatty. It had a great pork texture to it. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because last night I had a duck confit with my boys and we were eating it and it reminded me of kawadi like how you know how duck confit gets that oiliness through the meat yeah which is amazing and delicious that fattiness through the meat and that's what it was like it had this great fattiness to it but yeah we shredded it up we were eating it in tacos i just grabbed grabbed a wing and ate one of them but the guys down there they were like lined up they were super excited for it so when i see a bunch of the the, uh, local mayan guides getting excited as this thing's cooking i know we're in for something good I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So let's talk fall turkeys. So if you, what is the number one biggest difference between hunting a fall turkey and hunting a spring turkey? So I love hunting fall turkeys 
to me, it's almost like pure turkey hunting. It's, there's something I like about it more than I enjoy the spring. And don't get me wrong, spring turkey hunting, it's it's what most people, 90% of them, not better than 90% of the hunters out there, that's what they think of. And in the spring, what you're doing is you're imitating the hen to get a gobbler interested to come in during breeding season and you, you get a shot at them. Um, and it could be hit or miss. And sometimes guys are, you got to set up and wait them out. And that season where those birds are really receptive is very short, that spring season. So these gobblers for one month a year, they're thinking about breeding. They're thinking about getting laid and, and that's your opportunity to hunt them like that. Fall turkey hunting, I think, is you're not, it has nothing to do with the breeding season, right? The, the gobblers are separate from the hens generally. You have gobblers in one group, you have hens and, and poults in another group or young birds. And those two flocks offer you two different hunts, two different hunting styles, different approaches to it. A gobbler is looking to breed for one month a year, roughly. And that's when you're, you're imitating a hen. But every single day, gobbler, gobblers, excuse me, they want to fight, right? They're super aggressive birds. So in the fall, I love hunting gobblers, although I have hunted, uh, you know, mixed flocks as well. Because in a lot of states, you're allowed to hunt male and female in the fall as well. So yeah, California is one of them. Different. Sure. So you can hunt hens. Um, I have hunted hens in the past in areas where I, they had really good turkey numbers. But I love fall gobbler hunting. And you're just, you're, those birds are always looking to fight. So I'm calling them in. I'm using gobbler calls. You're imitating other gobblers to get them to come in. Uh, and to me, I think it's a lot of fun because I inevitably, I always have guys tell me, they say, you know, they call BS because I tell them how the birds came in strutting and gobbling. And until you get out there and do it, a lot of people don't even realize it. Um, that show that they put on in the spring, I think it's even more spectacular when they're doing it, looking for a fight in the fall. They come in aggressive. They come in in groups. I've had with a buddy of mine, uh, Ray, I, you know, he had a great video of 13 gobblers coming in together for a fight and then they're fighting each other on the way in it's, <laughs> yeah it's just you know they just lose their minds because turkeys if you if you spend time with wild turkeys and watch them they're they're just super super aggressive birds they're not friendly to each other oh i know Very i mean funny. anybody everybody here who's listening to this who is turkey hunts and chances are if you're listening to this you turkey hunt has shot a bird and yeah. seen his like buddy kick the crap out of him like when he's down <laughs> it's like i never yeah, liked you they do man yeah because they see a sign of weakness and you know here come three gobblers there's a definite pecking order you know it's when they come in there's a pecking order there and as soon as one of them shows signs of weakness like flopping half dead on the floor on the ground yeah the other ones jump all over that and if you watch a group of, of turkeys together they're picking at each other and pecking and pulling on each other's feathers and it's not a real, uh, it's not a peaceful situation in the flock. There's a lot of angst between those birds. So Even in the, the fall, that's what that, I'm don't they? What's that? Even the hens do that, don't they? Oh, yeah. The hens are doing it, too. They're, there's a very definite uh, hierarchy in a group of hens. And you'll see it with a group of hens coming. So in the fall, you can hunt hens as well. And what I do there is there's a number of ways to hunt uh, fall turkeys, the hens. That's, it's a little bit different. Obviously, because you're not doing the gobbler calls, because they don't, 
Now, a group of gobblers in the fall, they tend to not care at all about hen calls. They'll just, you'll see a turkey in the distance, you'll do hen calls on him. He won't even pick his head up. And the same goes for the hens if you're doing gobbler calls at them. But if you get out there and you start doing hen calls, the aggressive hens will come in because they, it's almost like they demand to know who the hell is in their area. Or another great technique you use is imitating young birds and young birds in distress with kiki runs and kiki calls because the instinct of the hen is to protect the young and they'll, they'll come in looking, looking for that. And that's another way to get them in range. Hmm. Um, in some states, I don't think you can't do it here in Florida, but in New York and just a few states now, they have uh, fall seasons where you're allowed to use dogs. And I've done I was gonna that. I going to ask you I, about that, actually. Yeah, because yeah. I, I saw that when I was doing research for this episode. I'm like, well, I've never even heard of that. That's kind of crazy. So have you ever done it? I I was lucky enough to do it one time with a buddy of mine. He had a, a dog who was just starting out. It did a, a good job. We didn't get a bird that day, but it was kind of cool to see the dog work. But uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jerry Befchi, was one of the editors for Outdoor Life magazine. He he had a, a turkey dog I know in the past. I never got to hunt with Jerry and his dog. But I know I've spoken to him about it a number of times, and he was eaten up with it. And you'd go out with the dog in the fall, and the dogs would range. You'd, a lot of the guys, the guys I know had setters. Uh, there's a, uh, they, have, they call them burn turkey dogs. The burn family has been breeding turkey dogs for years. And so this dog ranges. It goes out into the woods. You can't see it. You know, it's out of range of what you would consider bird dog range tracks a flock and when it finds the flock it flushes them so the turkeys scatter and then the dog will sit there and bark till you get to them and then once you get up there it was the coolest thing i've ever seen the guy we sat down against the tree he opens up this camo bag the dog gets in it with just his head poking out and goes to sleep behind us like next to us on the tree and that's it the dog's job was done now our job is to call this flock of scattered turkeys back together uh, because they're so social, once you bust up the flock, you give it 15 or 20 minutes and you'll start to hear them peeping and calling. If it's hen with young, you hear those kiki calls and uh, you imitate them, sound like the, the one of the hens and, and call the birds back in, which is pretty cool. It's That's interesting. A completely different than, yeah, it's a completely different dynamic than any other kind of turkey hunting and really any other kind of hunting. There's not a lot, you know, where else do you go with a dog where you let the dog flush the bird and then the dog takes a nap and you, then you start your part of the hunt. Yeah. I mean, mean, that is unique. Although, uh, in Western quail hunting, it's a pretty normal technique to, uh, flush a a bunch of quail. Maybe you get a couple shots off and then you can sit and wait and they will do the exact same thing. They will start trying to get coalesce as a, as a covey again, but I've never heard of the dog taking a, you know, all right, I'm done guys later. The dog's done, man. The dog just laid down the egg, literally got into this, a bag. It was like a homemade bag made from that military, that old school military camo that people, you know, we used to wear in the Mm eighties before camouflage became a kind of a thing. And it looked like a kind of a large duffel bag that they just sewed a hole into so the dog could poke his head out. The dog crawls in the bag, super excited, laid down, curled up. And that dog knew it, it did its job. It was out there to flush that flock, and he was the dog was pretty tickled that it did. We wound up calling back in a bunch of uh, little Jennies, little little young hens, and we passed mm. on them. But uh, it was it was very cool, and I'll go do that again in a hot second. There are guys who are doing it in New York and certain states that are just eating, and the guys who do it are eating up with it. It's uh, it's very much one of those addictive things. It's not 
you don't hear a lot of guys who go hunting with turkey dogs once in a while. It's the guys who are doing it are obsessed with it. That's what gotcha. you know. Yeah. So there's another thing about, and I've done this in California, not uh, largely because sometimes I'm a little impatient and also because I'm not a f- tremendously good turkey caller, but you can walk them up and shoot them like pheasants. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I know guys who've done that. I've been out with my uh, Springer. I always have flushing dogs. Mm-hmm. So I would guide for upland birds with uh, Springers and Boykins. And um, so I've been out in cornfields and even sorghum where the dog gets birdie and, and flushes a flo- even a flock of turkeys um and i do know guys who hunt them like that for me personally the thing i love about turkey hunting is the calling mm. so for me anytime i can and call birds in that's what i love to do and any game i mean that's why i, I well, started like elk ducks. hunting and i just oh yeah same thing with the ducks and the geese i love that so i have a buddy of mine i drive him crazy he was a, one of the guys with me, this guy Todd at the club. And on my days off from guiding, I would go out for myself and with my buddies. And we would be sitting there and I would be calling a bird and this bird's in the roost and it's gobbling. And another bird just comes walking by. And I wouldn't let Todd shoot that bird because I was there for the bird that I was playing with because, you know, I'm, I have something wrong. There's something wrong in my head that if I didn't call the bird in, I'm at the point where, you know, and I'm going to hear guys, you know, talk about what an asshole I am for doing that. But <laughs> I don't know. To me, the fun, the fun, everything about the turkey hunting is the calling. It's, you know, uh, I'm good friends with a guy named Ray. I. He's been turkey hunting since the dawn of time. He, he's done TV shows and the calling contest and all this other stuff. And he uh, he always used to say calling is everything. And that's how I feel. Um, maybe it was part from always hanging out with him and, and learning a lot of my turkey skills from him. But to me, it's the beauty of the turkey hunt is, is the call is the call. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're, I think I'm in the minority in that I don't necessarily care about it, but then I would not yeah. consider myself a real turkey hunter. I would consider myself a hunter who occasionally kills turkeys. Yeah. And it's just, it's ultimately, I tell guys all the time, there's, it drives me crazy when I see guys online and it's not just with turkey hunting, but like, Rifle hunters bashing crossbow guys. Crossbow guys. The archers are saying how if you hunt with a crossbow, you're a check and you're mm-hmm. not on. You know the the BS, the bullshit with hunters attacking each other because they don't. You're not doing it like me is is absurd. And to me, that's something I talk about a lot on my social media, on my own podcast with my friends. It's uh, you know, it's it's about for me hunting. Really, it's about it's about getting food, right? So 90% of the food we eat in my home is wild game. But the beauty of it is that I can do that and at the same time just have fun and love being out there doing what I do, right? You're going to, you're going to the to Publix or to the supermarket to pick up a steak. Nobody loves doing that. I get to love getting my groceries. Nobody loves getting their groceries more than you and I do, right? Right, exactly. Maybe gardeners, you know. Yeah, gardeners, which I am a gardener. I love down here in Florida. I don't have a garden right now, and it's killing me. My wife's joke. We joke about it because it's a big void in our lives. And um, do you have enough ground where you can actually plant something? No, not where we are here. We're looking at at getting. We're like literally. I could watch the fireworks at Disney World from where we live. It's 
from my house to the castle is one mile as the crow flies. But we're looking, you know, we moved here when we came down. This is where our friends and family so moved here. But we're looking at ground to get a small a few acres where I can raise some of my own meat maybe and, and, and farm again. Because I love everything about that. I'm, I gotta, I'm learning more about around here because in the Northeast, I could forage a lot more. I knew mushrooms and I knew where I, after 30 years, you knew where all the ramps were going to pop up every year and where the morels were and all that sort of stuff. And I'm starting at square one here in Florida, not knowing a, what the hell I'm looking at with a lot of this stuff and B, I don't know any of the, I don't know the ground. So. Yeah. It's a very different flora down there. And when you get ready for it, there's a, there's a company, I think it's called so exotic and they're based in Florida and they, they grow all kinds of really cool stuff and from all over the world. And it would be that I would definitely I like I bought a tomato tree from them, which is this crazy South American, you know, it's like a tree. It's a tree. Right. And it grows this fruit that when the fruit is ripe, looks like a plum tomato um, coming off the tree. And it's it's pretty trippy. And I've eaten them a couple of times. But like, why not grow one? And and so this your opportunities in Florida are going to be pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to get back to that. But, you know, I miss it. I miss and some people, and like you said, it's just, for, it's not for everybody. Just like what I'm saying with how I hunt turkeys and how I do it is not how you're supposed to do it or how you should do it. Find a way to do it that you enjoy. I mean, you know, I know guys who want to, they would love to, to, they love pass shooting ducks. I like to get them decoyed in. That's the fun of it. Um, and it depends, I guess it depends on how hungry you are. You know what, <laughs> you know what I mean? If it you're does. hungry, it's going to take them whenever whatever way you can if i'm talking about the perfect scenario of just enjoying myself and i have a lot of opportunity right i was turkey hunting every day from the second week of april through june where we we were so to uh to kind of hold out and do that is great but that being said if you're out there you got one day i'm the type of guy who's like take the jake i have no problem with that i'm not this big trophy hunter and i've talked about it with people all the time i don't if somebody is super excited about a spike or a forkhorn they have, then more power to them. I think that it's about loving what you do and having a good time. And man, it kills me that hunters aren't more supportive of each other, especially with, I think we have enough shit stacked against us where we could uh, offer a little more support to people. Yeah, I agree. Support on our team. Like my general theme for the, the spring in California where you get three birds is first legal bird that I see goes down. So that yeah. I got one under my belt and then, and then, then I can hunt for a gobbler, but I'll be, I'll be damned if I don't have Turkey in the freezer, you know what I mean? And then in the fall, yeah. <laughs> the, the, so I can pretty much describe to you my fall Turkey hunting. Uh, it's basically mushroom hunting with a shotgun. Cause there's this spot. <laughs> I know, right. It's, there's a spot in Sonoma County that I have, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he manages these forester, and there's like right when the mushrooms are starting to come out in November, it's the turkey season. So there's this giant flock of turkeys, and it's interesting. It's a mixed flock. It's not just gobblers mm-hmm. and and uh, and hens separated from each other, yeah. or unless it's a case of they're just getting together for that moment. But they always seem to be together. Yeah. And well, once it starts, once it starts to get into what what time of year is that? That's the November. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, see, that might be, they might be starting to get, in your area, might be getting into more of a winter flock at that point. So when it's cold here, you'll see all, you could see all the birds together in one big giant flock. Uh, well, okay. not here necessarily, but I mean, in New York, I have photographs from the early 2000s of 150 birds together in a flock in New York. Mm. And there were gobblers and hens and, and poults. But it's interesting, more often than not, if you sit and watch those flocks, the gobblers are kind of hanging back or to one side and they're all together because there's safety in numbers. But if you, and I could be wrong, maybe you have some turkey specialists out there who, who've seen it more than me, but I've spent a lot of time watching them. And oftentimes it seems they, they're kind of there for the numbers and then they don't interact with one another. Like the gobblers still have their, their order and the hens have their pecking order and they kind of deal with it like that. But hmm. It's a little yeah, bit like specks and snows. Specks and snows will often flock up together, but you don't see it feathered in like that, so to speak. There's usually yeah, like kind of a glob of specks and a glob of, of snows and like that. Yeah, and I think it's like that, but but yeah, that's cool. And you know, it's a sound theory. Get the first one, the first one in the in the freezer, and and then talk about it. And then you get in the, the fall. Sh- it's anything goes. Like oh, oh yeah. look, the turkey. Let's get let's get Thanksgiving. <laughs> Yeah, and when I was guiding, I would tell guys that too. I had some guys who did you guide wanted, in the fall? I did guide in the fall. I would take take folks out. No dog hunting, but just calling. And and it was it's a different game. In the spring, I we would go out first thing in the morning, try to get those birds off the roost, and then if that didn't happen, you'd set up in likely areas and call. And the fun part for the fall turkey hunting was I almost liked it better once the birds were down and doing their thing. And I liked it when it was colder out and the woods were more open. So I would wind up doing my turkey hunts, guiding the turkey hunts in in November, while well, just before the deer season opened up. I thought that was a great time to hunt turkeys in the Northeast. The woods are open. You can hear, you can see. Um, but yeah, we got in and it was it's an all-day affair, which is nice. In New York, you have to stop hunting at noon. In the Northeast, here in Florida, you can go all day on private ground, and you have to stop at one on public. But in the fall, it's it's an all-day affair. So if you did get into some birds and they they kind of screwed off and went and did their own thing, you could, if you have enough ground, you can move ahead, you could play with them and have some fun with it. So I understand that in the fall and winter, turkeys switch their diet up from bugs and stuff, obviously because it's colder, to in mast to so acorns and various nuts and things like that. And then they tend to go into deeper, thicker woods from, from my understanding, they like, they're not going to hang out in a field as much. Is that your, is that your experience? Yeah. So just like you said, it all depends on the availability of food in the fall. Um, turkeys. And if any, anybody who's a turkey hunter, I'm sure you could see it like during the spring when they're breeding, it seems like every field has a gobbler in it, right? Everywhere you look, there's a gobbler here, there's a gobbler there, they're strutting and they're, they're putting on a show because they want to be seen at that time of year. Then the summer comes along, um, a big black feathered bird, the sun's a lot for them. So they're going into the shade, they're going into the thicker areas, edges of swamps to cool down. In the fall, they're going to go where the food is. If you have a good mast year, they're up in those woods and they're you're not going to see them in the fields as much. Um, if, if you have corn that was just harvested or being harvested, they tend to come out there and hit field edges. Turkeys are one of those animals. I've had the best luck with them, and they have the best success rates across the country 
as far as where they establish themselves when they have that transitional ground, right? You're looking for agricultural areas that also have hardwoods, that have some swamps. It's a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly they certainly change up their diet. I've, I open up every animal I, I kill. I open up the crop on every bird. I open up the crop. I don't necessarily open up stomachs on animals because I don't need to get graphic and smelly. <laughs> but, um, but I always open up the crop. And I've opened up gobblers that have had um, old acorns. They've had bugs in them. I even had, I opened up one gobbler. He had 15 pinky mice in his crop. So wow. He came across, he was scratching somewhere, came across a mouse nest, and he ate all the pinkies. Um, and I've heard stories of, of gobblers that ate, that had baby birds in them. They're, they're really opportunistic. opportunistic yeah. Birds. My friend's seen one of the baby rattlesnake in its crop. That was a oh, scary, yeah. that was kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen a snake, but I've heard that too. Um, you know, and I've seen, I watched hen turkeys once with a garter snake running around. There was a, a hen turkey had a garter snake in his mouth and 12 other turkeys or whatever it was were chasing her through a field. As she's running around trying to figure out how to eat this damn twelve-inch-long garter snake. But yeah, they'll they'll in the spring and summer they're on whatever moves around, lots of protein. And then in the winter, I think they're going for that mass. They're going for more the acorns. If you have good acorns, you'll have the turkeys. You know they need that fat in the winter. Um, but yeah, and then they're they're you know getting out of the weather, getting into the woods helps them out to to avoid the wind and the rain and. And well, rain's a little bit different, but to, to avoid the winter weather. Um, yeah, I think so that's that, a, that leads be- me to this next question about you know, if you're trying to get yourself a Thanksgiving turkey, um, are there you know, like you know, we talk about duck days where where I live, a north wind and a clear, a clear day and a, and a strong north wind is an excellent, excellent day to go duck hunting, whereas no wind and pounding rain is a terrible day to go duck hunting. And what are the what are some of the weather variables to look for and to, or to just, you know, sit there and watch football if, uh, in the, in, in when you're fall turkey hunting? Well, I'm, I'm one of the guys who, you know, you can't, you can't kill turkeys if your ass is on the couch. Like I tell, as a guide, I always said that I know some guys who swear that turkey hunting in the rain is a waste of time. It's not good, but you know, these birds are, turkeys are being turkeys, no matter what's happening outside, they're being turkeys. That being said, if you're looking for the best turkey day, if you're going to try to pick a vacation day based on the weather for next week, um, I like days that I don't like rain and I don't like wind for turkeys. So if you got turkeys, especially in the fall when they're in the woods, if there's still a lot of leaves around, rain and wind make everything in those woods move. So turkeys don't have a sense of smell. They're operating on sound, but largely 90% of their alarm system to keep them alive is their eyes they see everything they don't miss a trick any movement so if you get a rainy windy day sometimes you'll see a lot of times you'll see these birds go out in the middle middle of a field and just hang all day long it's not because they necessarily like what's in that field but it's because they're safe nothing can sneak up on them uh-huh. in the woods if every branch and leaf and and tree is shaking those birds they have no idea where danger is coming from so I tend to see rainy, windy days. I would be on a field somewhere. If, if that's the day you have the hunt and it's going to be windy or rainy, get on a field, get on a field edge where those birds are going to want to be out in the open and feel safe. If you have a day, 
I think less wind is always better because you're calling, right? So the more wind you have, the tougher it is for those calls to be heard. The tougher it is for to call a bird that's upwind in a hard wind. If it's downwind, you're fine. You know, if the bird is, if you're, the wind is taking your calls to them, that helps. But on a windy day, it makes it harder. If, if it's going to be a windy day and you're hunting, go for it. Just remember to, to crank up on your calls a little bit. I'll use, on a windy day, I'll use, instead of using just regular slates, I'll use glass. I love these old, you can still get some copper and aluminum calls. Mm. For a rainy day, I have a, a, a mad call, right? So from Mark Drury to Drury Brothers, before there was Drury Outdoors, back 20-something years ago, they made these titanium calls. And they're bomb-proof. They're titanium and plastic. Not the prettiest turkey call I own, but I'll be damned if that's not the best call I've ever had my hand on a really windy day. Because you can crank up on it, get a high-pitched call that, that travels and cuts that wind, and that'll increase your success rate. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, so it's very similar to squirrel hunting. And similarly in the fall, if it's a super windy day, it's just not a great day for squirrels because A, they have the same issues that turkeys do and they have to live in the woods. And B, you just can't see them, you know, especially if there's any leaves still on the trees. It's just not a fantastic day. I actually have cleaned up on squirrels on calm rainy days but not windy, rainy days. Yeah, on a calm, rainy day, it's, you know, those these these factors, these weather factors, if you stack them up, if you take a lot of rain and a lot of wind, obviously, you're, well, your success rates are going down. Um, but even with ducks, I, I guided ducks and waterfowl for years. And when you had a really hard, rainy day, folks would say, oh, it's a great day for ducks. And I disagree. I think that you get, a nice, you want wind with a waterfowl. And if you get light, light rain, or for me, the best thing in the world is light snow, all of a sudden you're in the money, but too much, too much of any one thing is, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to help you with a lot of this, a lot of the different kinds of hunting I find. I a hundred percent agree. Like we have this in California where we're, we're not a very stormy place, but every winter there'll be one or two Holy crap days where it's, you know, 35, 40 mile an hour winds sustained and south are coming from the south and the rain is going sideways. And I, I it's like kind of a crapshoot. Like I've had amazing days on those days, but I've also had it where like, well, this just sucks. <laughs> Nothing is fine because it just it's too much. Yeah. And it's what the animals are used to. Right. So in California, you're not where if you're in an area that's really dry, if you get all sorts of rain generally those animals are going to be a little more shell-shocked. They're not going to, it's not the norm, it's not normal for them. So that is going to inhibit their movement. It's going to change their normal routine. Down here in Florida, you look at the heat, right? Up in New York, if it was a 70, 65 degree day or 70 degrees during deer season, the deer are not going to move. Like I've, I've gone out, you're not, you just, the deer are laid up somewhere down here in Florida that's a cool day. So the deer are popping and they're moving all over the place. Um, the same thing with the ducks. If you get a warm day in, in the Northeast or I don't know how it is by you, but if you get a warm, calm day, the birds tend to just seem to, to lay up and, and sit. Yeah. And down you get here, like an hour up, and that's about it. Yeah. And down here it's 90 degrees. The mosquitoes are thick and the ducks are just doing their thing because I think it's, they get down here, even if they've migrated down, it seems like 
maybe it's a fluid theory, but it seems like they get down here and it becomes the norm for them. So they just get on with life, just like anyone else. You know, once it's this, they it's almost like the birds. They they're gonna they realize this is just the way it is, and you have to get on and eat and move around and do that sort of stuff. So anytime you get out of that norm, out of that little comfort zone, wherever it is, it kind of changes up the uh, the animals' patterns, in my opinion. So about speaking of patterns, it's a good question. It's my understanding that if you really want to be successful with fall turkeys. The best way to do it is to, you know, know your ground, of course, and Absolutely. just to watch the turkeys for quite a bit of time so that you can paddle them like like whitetails can be patterned. Absolutely. hundred uh, percent. And that doesn't just go for fall turkeys. That goes for spring, spring as well. Um, you know, you'll get birds that are something changes and it puts them off their schedule or, or draws them in or spooks them off. But I would always before a season open, whether it was spring or fall, I usually spent with the turkeys. I get up, I usually started two to three weeks beforehand, waking up every single day in the morning, trying to find these birds. And I just sit and glass them, just sit and watch, see what they're doing. Once you find a roost, sneak into the woods. I mean, I would wear camo during my research, no calls or anything, get my camo on, go into the woods and sit and just listen, find out where these birds are roosting. Because they're creatures or habits. So a turkey roost in the Northeast, and it's even more so if you go to a place like Texas or down in, in Mexico where there's limited trees, but the birds like to use the same haunts, right? They love to use a similar roost. There's a lot of birds that will use the same roost every single day if they're not spooked or put off of it. Or they may have one or two roosts that they bounce between. But if you put in that time patterning them, I, you know, it's always funny because guys say, like you said, you can patter them like a deer. And I think you can pattern them better than a deer. I think there's, hmm. I think there are, I, I find in my deer hunting, there are more things bumping deer and pushing them off their patterns than a flock of turkeys even. Um, you know, you can spook a flock of turkeys. And I tell guys all the time, they're like, oh, I spooked the birds. They won't be back. They'll be back. Turkeys, they're good at surviving, but they're not going to over, they're not going to go tomorrow and be like, Oh, you know, that's where that jerk off was in the woods over there. I'm not going to go over there. <laughs> they're not thinking like that. You know, if that's where they were living, then they'll get back to it eventually. But, um, but yeah, anything, anytime with turkeys, the more time you can put in watching and glassing and getting to know them, uh, it's going to help you a lot. If you can go out in the evenings, I'm a huge proponent of roosting birds, both spring and fall. Um, in the find spring, out where, the, they're, the where they're hanging out. Yeah. Find out where they're, where they're going up for the night. So right around sunset, um, all turkey season, spring and fall. My, I have photos, and I just posted a, a picture the other day on, on social media. My kids grew up. My wife is a waitress, so she would work evenings. And my kids, from the time they were six months old, would be in a backpack, and they would come out every single night before the season, right on through the end of it roosting birds and we would go out there i would owl who imitate an owl or use a crow call some guys say coyote calls that'll get a shock gobble but i'm not a big fan of mm. using it in the mornings to get birds to gobble because i use a crow call the other direction yeah crow call is a great call and in the fall you may just get that one opportunity because it's truly just a shock gobble the gobblers aren't putting on a big show in the fall but if it lets you know where they're roosted 
You can come back in the if it's before the season, come back in the morning, set up and kind of watch and see where they're going from there to just you know to figure out their travel patterns. Or if it's during the season, it allows you to sneak in in the dark, good and close within a tight calling distance, and be ready and waiting for a bird that you know the bird's there. You know you're stacking the odds in your favor. Um, research, 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 man. Just scout those birds as much as you can. That's what I did. I was obsessed with. I, I sincerely spent, if you put it on, uh, if I had a clock in and out, I spend more time every season scouting than I did actually hunting. I would almost be willing to bet. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I just, I, I having tried it the other way, which is to say, just trying to walk them up like a pheasant. Um, real low percentage, real low. I mean, we've we've done it. We've been successful, but you know, you end up walking eleven miles, and you know, you get one you know you get one good flush you, you know if it's the spring you got to make sure it has a beard and it's flying away from you so that's a that's a dicey shot unless you've got a real good eye uh and then oh, the, yeah. the, the fall's a little different like so the falls like if i got a flush you know that turkey's gonna hit the ground because it doesn't matter because we're allowed to hunt hens yeah. absolutely and you know it's um when you're trying to flush them up like that if you if you know where they're going to be if you're watching if you spend some time you don't have to go it's not like you have to hike to the top of a mountain to uh to scout out a markhorn pakistan you know these are turkeys they're coming down around people around the houses around your stomping grounds 90 percent of the time you can kind of go on a road or a logging road somewhere and hell if you got a pickup truck pull out in the woods somewhere sit down pull down your tailgate with a cup of coffee in the morning and just listen even if you don't see the birds they talk every morning. Turkeys are very vocal, very social. I can't tell you how many times I couldn't see birds, and I was literally sitting on the tailgate of my truck with, uh, you know, uh, uh, an egg McMuffin and a cup of coffee. And I'm I'm scouting. I'm doing research, and it's all really valuable information for me to come back and hunt. And I think that there's there's no two ways about it. It, it works. Hey everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, Absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. So before we get into the, to the, the butchering, cooking, and food, I want to talk one last topic before we hit that. And that is... Everybody seems to say that the Eastern is the smartest and the Rio is the dumbest. And I've hunted, I haven't, I haven't gotten all species. I've gotten the Merriams, the, the, I've hunted Easterns, uh, but I've not yet gotten one. Uh, hunted, I've shot Merriams, I've shot Rios, and uh, I told you about my encounter with the, with the Goulds. But I have generally found in my very limited experience that Rios tend to be the easiest to hunt and Easterns are the hardest. But I'd like to hear your take on it. So, yeah, I, I piss off a lot of guys with with this local guys whenever I travel because I travel a lot for turkeys. And for me, turkeys are turkeys, right? I don't believe that these turkeys don't like calling these, don't, these birds don't like this or that. 
I find that the birds that are difficult, the reason you might be seeing Easterns, and I do, I do see a lot of Easterns that were more difficult to hunt than a lot of the Rios I've hunted. But if I, if I dig a little deeper, I see that it's because there's more hunters in the area. There's more people in the area. So the birds are being bumped and spooked and that sort of thing. Where I hunt Rios, they are, you know, out in the brush country. There's not a lot of people stomping around. There's nobody jogging and walking their dog. They're not seeing four or five hunters come around and, and call to them and call from a car, hitting a box call from the roadside. I tend to think that the birds that are having the most interactions with people, hunters and non-hunters, that's going to make it a tougher bird to hunt hmm. um, because they're getting off their patterns, because they're becoming, they, they're harassed, so they're a little, a little spookier. So, so I'm going to I'm going to sort yeah. of disagree with you on this one, um, okay. because in my experience with the Rios and I have the most experience with the Rios is that when you encounter a flock of Rios that's on, say, a farm where it's huntable, but the landowners don't really hunt that much, you know, maybe like two pigs are, or two pigs, maybe two turkeys are shot off that that ground a year. Yeah, they're stupid easy to hunt crazy easy and they're interacting with people all the time but I, so i think i think you're on to something about you know in, a, in terms of hunter effort but i do not get a sense out here at least that turkeys that interact with human beings on a general sense are spookier than those that don't okay, i almost so think yeah, it's the so opposite because no, so you, they're yeah, in a safe you're, sense you're, yeah so i think i maybe i misspoke a little bit i don't mean that a turkey that is walking in a in a field while the farmer is mowing. I think I'm talking about if there are people bumping those turkeys and putting some kind of pressure on the birds. Gotcha. Um, that's what I mean. As far as I know, guys who, I mean, if I wanted to kill a turkey in the Northeast during the turkey season or whenever, the easiest way to do it was to get on the tractor with the manure spreader behind it and drive out there. I could go out with an empty manure spreader, and when I turned it on, I could just turn around and shoot the first bird because they would come running up to it. That isn't to those turkeys. Um, that's not a person. That's not a threat. It's you know food coming in. So I agree with you there. Maybe I misspoke, but I'm you know I'm thinking more of pressure on the birds, bumping gotcha. them, moving them, being in their area, that sort of thing. And I don't. I've. It's been notoriously. I come. The things you hear is you come to Florida. And a lot of guys tell you Osceola's don't like calling. They don't like a lot of calling. Um, and I haven't found that. I, I find that they're turkeys. My opinion on calling all game, so turkeys, ducks, geese. Geese and turkeys and ducks, they call to each other all the time, right? They never, they don't spook each other away. If you, a bird is, call, if you say a bird is call shy, my belief is, and it pisses people off because they assume that I'm attacking them. If a bird's call shy, it's because you don't sound enough like that bird. End the subject. If turkeys are call shy, it's because you're not calling how turkeys call. You're either, you know, cackling away, calling too much. It's not a good sound. You have to imitate the birds how the birds sound. Yeah, I was um, just going to say that. Like with ducks, it's not that you're not necessarily sounding like a duck. You're just saying something inappropriate at the time. Yeah, you know, you're, you're not you're highballing when everyone else is chuckling. Absolutely. And if you if you go and listen and if you spend time with ducks, 
people love to do that Arkansas highball. Quack, quack, quack. And if you sit and watch ducks, ducks, you watch, I've watched flocks of ducks, hundred ducks. And that sound happens almost never. You want to, mm-hmm. you want to sound like the birds, pay attention. Geese literally as flocks are going by, they're talking to each other. They're calling very aggressively. Um, and I learned, like Fred Zink would say, if you watch geese, everybody thinks, oh, the geese are calling to each other to bring them in. The birds coming in want, are coming because there's food there. The birds on the ground will, if you watch birds, they'll chase away the bird, try to chase the birds that land with them. They're not looking for those other birds to come to that feed. Like they're aggressive towards each other. But if you're, if you, if you're calling and birds are turning the other way, you either don't sound like a goose or you're not. You're not calling the right cadence or stop. You're not sounding like natural geese. And I feel the same way with turkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've, I've hunted in Missouri. Birds were tough as hell. I've hunted in Texas. I hunted in Oklahoma where we had birds that were just tough as hell because there had been a bunch of hunters in one of the areas and, and people were coming on the side of the roads. And I've been on birds in New York where I make two putts and they come gobbling in and I, sh- I shoot them in self-defense. Um, <laughs> You know, but I think the more pressure that's put on birds, it gets tougher time of the season. There's, you know, no matter where you go, there's always going to be a couple of days of season where you can do no wrong, it seems like, which is a lot of fun. You want to hit on those when you get those. It's pretty special. Oh, yeah. But it's that, like duck hunting. Yeah. Uh, you know, these birds, all of the birds, I love to hunt them all, but, you know, they have a brain the size of a pea. And when I don't overthink it, when someone says, why didn't that bird come in? I'm like, it was turkeys being turkeys like it's it sounds like a cop-out but that's really all there is to it you can't you're never going to know you know you'll kick yourself in the ass like why did this bird not come in but sometimes it who the hell knows but if you couldn't see the bird it could have been anything that bird could have maybe that bird saw a snake cross his path or a possum it didn't like or it, it heard a hen you didn't hear or the wind blew and the bushes shook you're never going to know you know these are don't overthink it just just keep plugging away when you get something that works right stick with that yep keep it as simple as possible but yeah that was kind of a long ass answer to a short question (laughs) no no that was good so let's talk let's start the uh the the post hunt section with to pluck or to not pluck pluck i I actually have an exception i I, I, I don't i tend to not pluck rope draggers everybody else gets plucked yeah. See, now I pluck, I usually pluck all my birds and I, I, some, and I do different things with different birds, right? So there, there are preparations and there's ways I, I cook birds and I'm going to, you know, I'll agree with you. I say pluck because if I pluck a bird and then I vacuum seal it and freeze it, all of my options are there, right? I could do whatever I want to do with that turkey. And that's how I look at it. Um, a lot of times I will take pluck a bird and then I'll split it right in half and vacuum seal it because a whole turkey is an event. Right. You know, and I'm trying to feed my family's feed my family regular, you know, regular meals. It's not every turkey that gets cooked in the Caggiano house is not Thanksgiving and an event. It's, sometimes it's just dinner. It's just food. Um, yeah, for me, almost none are are an event because if I'm going to do yeah. like a as, for me, it's a Christmas goose, not a Christmas turkey. Yeah. So, but, but I, I keep my options open. Um, I've plucked so many damn birds that it doesn't, it doesn't bother me to pluck them. It goes pretty quick. Once, 
once you get the hang of it, uh, plucking a turkey, I can pluck a whole bird down in, you know, 10 minutes or so, 15, clean it up. I, I find them really easy to pluck, like way, because so, their skin is tough enough to withstand you yanking on it, where you need a bit more finesse, the smaller the, uh, so all of the, all of the chicken-like birds are, are, are the hardest birds to pluck depending on on which species they're in and i think rough grouse and the quail are are two of the hardest um but turkeys are so big you can just you can just pluck it as if you how you think you should pluck it and you're almost never going to be in a problem but my first tip now i want to hear your tips on plucking after uh Mm -hmm. my first tip is to pluck before you gut i agree so i always pluck before i gut on any birds there's there, I don't have, there's no bird that I'm thinking hard right now that I pluck before I, that I gut before I pluck because then you're going to, you're, you're dealing with skin that's already cut in my opinion right. and you're yanking on it and all that other stuff. Um, I tend to hang birds. If I'm going to pluck a goose or a turkey, I like to hang them. I'll hang them from a rope. So they're right in front of me by their head. And then it's just very natural. Put a garbage pail or something under them. And you pull the bird, the feathers come down. That's the way mm-hmm. they want to come out of the bird, right? Into the trash. I had, uh, there was an old guy that I met um, a couple years ago. He actually bred pheasants and he would do all that for the club I worked at. And he swore by 147 degree water. And he was yeah, like, that's about right. 150. And if you can take that bird, put, take a water, if you can get a big old pot like you do a turkey fryer. Get the water in there around 147 degrees. And I'm telling you, he was a hard ass that that was the exact right. And this is from, for him, this was 50 years of practice and trying different temperatures. He was uh, this old German guy who was as, as I mean, OCD to the to an incredible point. And put some Dawn dish liquid in there. Yeah. I'll break down the oil. And he would put the bird in and look at his watch. And literally, you kept him in there for one minute and 15 seconds, he said. Hmm. Don't ask me where these numbers come from. One minute. Pull it out, hang it up, and those feathers, it was no effort to pull them out. Um, if you do it quickly. If you let the yeah. bird cool, you're, you're hosed. No, you're not going to let it cool. But literally, hang it up by its head. And by the time that bird is, by the time it's cooled down, you have all the feathers off them. Yep. Um, that being said, I've, I've, plucked, I've plucked a lot of turkeys without the water, you know, on the road or traveling. Um, but I also like that when I pluck a bird, if I'm on a trip or a hunt, it's almost like pluck it first before you gut it. Now, that bird, that meat is, it's like it's vacuum wrapped, right? That skin is keeping the moisture in. It's stopping that skin, especially on a turkey and like a pheasant, you know, that skin scabs up. It gets that funky, wrinkly, dry, like pudding skin on it you know that when pudding has that thin skin that <laughs> over the top oh well, I don't yeah know what yeah you call it. but when you any of those well even with ducks when you pull the skin off that outside skin starts to dry and unless you're trying to age a bird like that i find that you're just the skin is almost like the bird is just sealed if you're traveling somewhere and that bird isn't going to get in a freezer anytime soon that skin is keeping the air off the meat so that's why i like it mm. and i also uh, yeah, like that we we both probably love crispy turkey skin. I mean, who, who doesn't? Yeah, of course. Man. And and, <laughs> and now that if I pluck that bird, I have all sorts of options because unless you're killing a bird and, and you're a chef and you're like, you know, oh, I want to work on this recipe, which I'm sure you've done the same thing. Like, oh, crap, I got to go out and get a couple of woodcock. I have this recipe I want to give a shot or I want to try or work on. 
Now I have options, right? A, bu- a bird that has the skin on, I can just rip that skin off and, and toss it or give it to my dog or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, or fry or, crispy. Yeah, fry crispy. Chicharrone or whatever. <laughs> exactly. But, what what I tend to do is I don't split them. Uh, I, I break them down. I break them down like a chicken. And so I'll have packets of wings, packets of legs, or wi- really packets of wings, packets of thighs, packets of drumsticks, and then the breast. And then, I, you know, the big bulky carcass I end up making uh, stock or broth out of. And that, for me, works really well. And I think a, uh, a tip that I we probably both do this is it is incredibly important to separate the drumstick from the thigh because the thigh is way, way, way more versatile in what you do with it because it only has the one bone in it where drumsticks have the, the infamous tendons that, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, they're, the, the drumstick meat is still amazing, but, you know, that whole old picture of Henry VIII where he's chewing on the turkey drumstick is is kind of kind of a lie unless he decided <laughs> to have, like, tendon dental floss or something like that. Yeah, I agree. And when I said amazing, I didn't mean amazing like, oh, the meat's amazing. I mean, it's amazing what a pain in the ass it is to eat a turkey drumstick is what I meant. You know, right? when I was the whole turkey and I had a, a drumstick, the drumstick didn't get eaten at the table. The drumstick was for me in front of the TV where I wanted something to chew on and I had 30 minutes to eat a turkey drumstick. Because by the time you go through the tendons and you're picking at it, it takes forever. I, But yeah, I do the same thing. Um, So I, I usually hunt on average, I hunt a dozen turkeys a year. So I tend to do different things, right? So I always, I usually do save one turkey whole, usually a younger bird, if, if at all possible, if I get a Jake or, or very rarely a hen, I save that. And then I, I cut some in half because I'll smoke a half a turkey, brine and smoke a half a turkey. But yeah, parting out the birds is, is great. I The thighs, I think the thighs are better than the breast i do too i think i think any game bird for me the the single best tasting game bird meat is a quail thigh how many quail thighs is a person gonna eat i don't know but you know what i mean when i'm well, limits quail, 15 me, that's my favorite yeah. <laughs> i i eat a whole flock as my wife says she doesn't like when i eat, we eat quail because she says it gets graphic because it's oh, just like I mean, lots of birds what about doves like Holly and I, yeah. eat a double limit of doves, and just like it's just yeah, man, it is a it just it is absolutely a flock. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's a lot of cool stuff when you part that out, and then the drumsticks are great. That's you know, maybe I'm getting we're getting away from the butchering, but the drumsticks are all about slow, low and slow for me. For sure, the barbacoas and the pulling apart and asabucos and all that. You know, we've done all that sort of stuff, all of those preparations with the drumsticks. There's a lot of flavor there. It's great flavor, but it's uh it's crock pot food yeah it's crock pot food it's just it's amazing yeah my more I'm just, my best... thinking about what it looks like like it looks like it exploded there's so many tendons in a turkey drumstick that you it's a meat whisk yeah absolutely i'm sitting here with my hands you can't see me and i'm holding my fingers up like trying to think of what to compare it to but yeah it's yeah. like a meat it's, it's a meat whisk my latest discovery of amazingness with a wild turkey is are uh, the wings so for years i would smoke them or just use them in the broth or you know i'd use them but i, I didn't I'd really use them and i finally decided that you know what the only difference between a turkey wing and a chicken wing is size and tenderness so if you braise 
the two, you know, the flat and the drumette until they're tender. And then you provide, you know, you bathe it in whatever, you know, buffalo wing sauce or honey mustard or whatever, whatever. And then you either smoke it or roast it or grill it after it has been braised tender and has been given the sauce. I'll tell you, man, it is the number one, the best, bar none, end of discussion, best part of that turkey. And because it's white meat. So the, the, the legs on wild turkeys, depending on the age of the turkey, can be very dark. And yeah. the breast meat's fine. I like the breast meat's good. But the wings, oh my God. Like now you shoot a lot of turkeys, right? So you, you're going to get four big turkey wing bits per bird. That's, you need to like collect some and do that. And it will be the most amazing feast. Yeah, I got to do that. That's, you know, I love, that's my favorite part of it. Well, aside from the thighs on the quail, I mean, domestic birds, I love wings. I love tur- chicken wings. I love buffalo wings. Um, like you said, as I've taken them off and barbecued the turkey wings slow and just with some sauce and, and chew on them, I think that's great. So yeah, I'm definitely have to give that a try. Slow cook them and then and eat them up fast with some sauce. You can't go wrong with that. Ah, oh, that's so good. <laughs> How can you go wrong with what you just described? I have no, I can't offer anything other than yeah. It was so amazing. <laughs> So the other cool thing about about turkeys is, you know, you and I grew up in the New York metro area. Um, cutlets, you know, it's one of the best cutlet birds that we have. I mean, because that breast is such a weird shape. It's like a it's like a teardrop where you've got this. The fat end of the tear is very thick and you can. But there's almost a, like it's a you can almost see a line where it goes from being kind of like a football with a triangle tail on it. And then you slice that triangle tail off it, which is towards the back end of the bird. It's dramatically thinner than the front. So you can you can actually have two different cuts of meat from the breast on each side where you cut that, you know, you, you watch that demarcation line, which is kind of about halfway through the breast. And that front end, once that's cut off, looks like a football. And you can do a whole bunch of things with that. And then you've got the triangle piece on the back end, and that's tailor-made for cutlets. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm grew up in the Bronx, Italian family. So chicken cutlets, any veal cutlets, all that sort of stuff. A lot of turkeys in, in this house wind up as a cutlet of some sort. Um, and it's funny, it's, uh, you know, franchise, milanese, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. And I, when I, I remember when I moved upstate and I started guiding, someone actually asked me, they were like, when you grew up, did you eat a lot of Italian food? And I'm like, well, yeah, but you know, we just called it food. It's just, that is for me to have cutlets, a piccata, that's right. That's everyday food in our house. Um, Turkey parm. Social media. Yeah. All that stuff. And you've seen it. We talked about it on social media and people like, Oh wow. Imagine cooking like that. And I'm like, yeah, this, like I always have what I need to make a piccata in my house. I always have what I need to make a Turkey parm pretty much. I could just grab some fresh mozzarella and I have 20 gallons of sauce already, you know, that I jar myself ready to go because I'm a, you know, I'm a good guinea from the Bronx. Exactly. I like I just kind of <laughs> like, same here. I mean, I think, I don't know, actually, I'm actually light on sauce right now because it's July and I don't, I don't have the new tomatoes in yet, but, uh, but I won't be for another, you know, in another couple of weeks and you always have little capers sauce in the fridge. Oh yeah. You know, and it's funny because we were, I was talking to somebody about, 
we had a friend come over once and he opened up and I'm sure I'm, I imagine you've had some similar, they open up my spice cabinet, my pantry. And so he actually said, there's no way you can use all this stuff. You know? And I said, he's like, Oh, you have capers and it, it, capers came up. Cause I actually had caper berries. Oh yeah. And I'm like, yeah, we always have capers in this house. That's stuff. That's like, you know, you, you always have it ready to use. Cause you never know when you're going to need a piccata. I mean, who knows? Like, well, yeah, think about need, it. Like, I might need one now. You could do piccata. <laughs> and then the other thing that I do all the time is a puttanesca. You know, you do the, oh, the yeah. harlot sauce. And it's, it's, it's capers, and capers olives. Uh, for people who don't know, it's capers, olives, um, like canned tomatoes. So it's not really fresh tomatoes. It mm-hmm. Typically, whatever herb is growing in your windowsill. Um, garlic and onions, and maybe a little splash of red wine, a little olive oil, and it's it's a thing that that is a, it's an Italian original that is super versatile. I've done it with halibut, I've done it with turkey breast, I've done it, you know, with no meat, and it's the thing that the so the legend behind it is that the ladies of the evening, when they're done with their shift, you know, it's about dawn and nothing's really open yet, so they can make it as their dinner before they go to bed in the morning with whatever happens to be in the kitchen. And it's, it, you know, I'll put a, I'll put a link to put an Esca sauce in the, the show notes. And it's just that with just chopped up turkey breast or ground turkey. We should actually Anything. talk about ground turkey. There's nothing you can't put in that sauce. And that's one of those, that is one of the, the preparation. That's a, a recipe where you can, a guy like you or me or, you know, my grandmother, when my Irish friends or waspy friends came over, they would wow, ooh. And meanwhile, it's quite literally a recipe I learned when I was nine years old, right. you know, because it was it wasn't even a recipe, right? Like when you you're gonna you have a puttanesca recipe, but growing up, it's just it's something you threw together. You didn't. It was just and like you said, it was it had a lot to do with what was what herbs did you have in your hand? Those are the ones that wind up in the sauce, and it's mm-hmm. always it's always a little bit different, but it's always awesome. Yeah, exactly. Just like a regular red sauce. It's like, yeah, it's just you know. good food, you know. And that's and with all the and that's something you'll see like you know, too is that with all of the traveling, I get, I travel a lot, right? I'm in Argentina five six times a year, and I have to travel for business, and it's wonderful, and it also sucks because at a certain point, and I know you can, I've I've followed your posts and I've seen what you've said. At a certain point, you just want to be home. Everybody misses home, no matter how much fun or adventure you're having. And when I come home from a trip, it's a bolognese or a puttanesca or something to that effect. That's what makes you feel like you're at home. You know what I mean? So that's yep. that's like I've been in Argentina having amazing meals at these incredible lodges that I manage for three weeks. I come home. I want simple pasta with a simple sauce and done great stuff man well that's a pretty good way to to end the end this with a good bowl of sauce um so before we go though i want people to know how they can get in touch with you and and where they can find your podcast so tell me about your your social your website your podcast and all that good stuff yeah man so you can find me on social media uh tony caggiano outdoors i'm on instagram we on facebook and our podcast and website is called wildgamebase.com. You can check it out there, wildgamebase on Instagram and all that good stuff. We talk about, you know, everything from the pursuit to the preparation and everything in between 
for wild game, hunting, fishing, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, wildgamebase.com. Pretty simple. Find everything there. That's kind of the home base for all of it. Good deal. So I'm going to put links to that in the show notes. And uh, I thanks again for coming on the show. It's pretty it's pretty awesome to talk to another guy from the Northeast. I don't get to do that very often. We can kind of geek out yeah, on we, new, new, you know, New Jersey, New York, Italian food and whatever. Yeah, man. And we kept it pretty clean for you and I. This, this didn't have a lot of F-bombs. Usually when we see each other in person, it's a lot more colorful. Like You <laughs> might say that, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> no, always a pleasure, man. It was fun. It was fun to be on again. Yeah, I'll make it so long before we do it again. For sure. And then, you know, we got to make that Yucatan thing happen at one of these days. Like, yeah, you know, I'm like, always seem to be too uh, late to like, I thought, like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. And you're like, up, oh, full up. Like, Damn it. Yeah. It's one of the things you got to plan ahead because it's just, there's, it's an amazing place. There's not, it may seem like there's a bunch of guys doing it, but there's really not. I mean, the industry and the, the hunting down there kind of fits in the palm of your hand. And it, it's, there's a lot of people want to do it. It books up early. You know, and it always sounds like I'm I'm being a salesman when I say that until like, you know, you call me up a couple months before and I, if I could have got, if we can get you in there, we would. And it's just got to plan ahead on that one, man. Yeah, totally. Good one though. Yeah, I'd like to hunt cool. Chihuahua too sometime too. Yeah. Let me know. We're going to, we'll be down there doing some stuff. Hopefully once this, once the Rona moves along or whatever's happening here, we can get back to it next year yeah. doing a, a, a single season Turkey slam among other things, lots of cool stuff, but. Yeah, you let me know. It'll be fun to do something together. We've been talking about it long enough. It's time to get off our asses and make it happen. I know. I mean, do we have time to to do something in 2021, or is that window passed? Yeah, I'll take a look for 2020. The problem with 20, 2021 is that so much of 2020 got bumped back to next year. Yeah, That's yeah. And for me, too, like I do these culinary hunts, and they uh, and we had to postpone one for a full year, just like, just like what you're talking about. Yeah, so there's only so many hunting days, and... You know, guys call me up, even in Argentina, where it's the doves are open all year. You have to remember all of those dove days in 2020 got pushed back to next year. Guys yeah, call me, like, hey, I want to go hunting in, in April. And I'm like, yeah, it's full. And they think I'm, it sounds, like I said, it always sounds like some salesman trying to push it on you to, to commit now. But sometimes, especially in the world we live in today, 2020's uh, been kicking us all in the ass, especially <laughs> in the hunting and travel industry, man. For sure. All right, bro. All right, man. Thanks a lot for your yeah, time. Anytime. And uh, I got to pee pretty bad, so I'll talk to you in a minute. Go me. All right, later, bro. Bye. <laughs> that is our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and big shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring the show. You can follow me on social media on Instagram at HuntGatherCook. I also run a private Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. You have to answer some questions to get in. Just say that you listen to me on the podcast and I will let you in. This is a specific group for wild foods, not just upland game, but also edible wild plants, mushrooms, fish, seafood, you name it. And as always, the core of what I do is my website. It is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is honest-food.net. You can also find it on hunttogethercook.com. You will find there literally thousands of recipes, techniques, tips, and tricks for working with all sorts of wild game, not just upland birds, but also big game, small game, fish, seafood, edible wild plants, and mushrooms. That is honest-food.net, hunter, angler, gardener, cook. Take it easy, guys. Enjoy this edible wild world we live in, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.